And uh, we are going to begin in chapter 1, and then we'll spend a good bit of time in chapter 3. And the series we're in since the beginning of the year, Advancing the Gospel of the Kingdom, but uh, in that we are, uh, last week in this, addressing kingdom culture. Um, and, and so uh, we're going to look at that. So uh, if you would, begin with me in James 1, verse 19 and 20. I'll be reading from the New International Version this morning. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Just wanted to illustrate that. And slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Let's pray. Like Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Alfred Poirier, and I, I honestly don't know how he says his name, but that's how I read it. Um, in in, in this is his book, The Peacemaking Pastor, he suggests that conflicts are about persons before they are about problems. Conflicts are about persons before they are about problems. Therefore, unresolved conflicts between Christians have less to do with people lacking skills than with them be, being sinful. Put another way, merely teaching uh, processes and procedures can do little to solve conflicts because those won't address the hearts of the persons involved. What is that problem in our hearts? Well, in broadest terms, we might say it's pride and it must be exchanged for humility. Uh, more specifically, maybe we can, we can dial down into that a little bit. Poirier offers that real change, and this is quote, quote, real change comes through the, a renewed vision of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Real change comes through a renewed vision of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the engine that drives the train of reconciliation. The gospel is the engine that drives the train of reconciliation. And the gospel must be the engine powering the culture which God desires any church to have. And, and gospel wisdom, that gospel wisdom out of which the culture God wants for His people grows, out of which it grows, um, is really quite probably what the whole book of James is about, I might argue. Uh, if one were to identify a, a single theme from the book of James, what might it be? There are a number of themes in the book of James, right? We, we might... We might think about trials. It opens, you know, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, right? We might think about true religion. True religion is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress. We might think that it's about treatment of the poor versus the rich in chapter 2, the first half of chapter 2, or uh, maybe true faith versus false faith, a professed faith or one that demonstrates itself through works. Or we might think it's about the tongue if we started at chapter 3. You might think it's about wisdom if we looked at the last half of chapter 3 or conflict uh, if we look at chapter 4, wages to workers in chapter 5, and of course prayer, which it begins and ends with this theme of prayer. So, so certainly all of those are in the running, but if there is a unifying theme to this letter, let me offer that it is actually wisdom, which might explain why it is at the center of this letter. That the, really the whole third chapter, as I'll make the case today, is about wisdom and, 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 and so forth. So we'll look at that. Um, this letter, 
and of course the author, James, begins telling us to count it all joy when we encounter trials of many kinds because it will produce steadfastness, which, if embraced, will mature us into who God wants us to be. But of course, to do so, to count it joy in the midst of trials, will require what? It'll require wisdom. So let him ask of God. If he needs wisdom, let him ask of God, who'll generously supply. Um, and this, by the way, means that even the trials we face as a church together should be embraced with joy that we might be matured. I'm, I confess I find that harder than easier. You know, I, I don't want the trials. I'd rather they just went away. That'll make things better here. <laughs> well, God seems to have a different opinion about all that. And, and, and I, so I need wisdom, right? Let him ask of God. We, we need wisdom because I'm guessing you're like me. You'd prefer a much smoother, easier life. Then we're given a bit of seemingly strange wisdom later in chapter 1. Believers in humble circumstances, that means poor, this is in verses 9 and 10. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. Now, let's be honest, that sounds like foolishness to this world, but it is gospel wisdom. Then there's the wisdom in the proverb we opened with. Everyone must be uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. That's wisdom. And there are numerous, if you go through the book, proverb-like tidbits in this letter which describe wisdom. The word wisdom is not found in each of them, but they are wisdom-like writings. They're proverb-like statements throughout this letter. And then in James 2, we learn that faith is seen in how we live, not just by what we say. The gospel calls us to a faith that guides our lives into God's ways. And what is biblical wisdom about? It's about the path that we are to walk in. And so that faith is a part and parcel of that. And while in chapter 2, faith is seen not in what we profess, but by how we live, in chapter 3, wisdom is seen not by what we say, but by how we live and communicate it, the way we present it. So faith and wisdom seem to interlock in this book. More specifically, chapter 3 tells us that the source of our wisdom, whatever wisdom we think we have, whether it be heaven or hell, can be seen by our humility or lack thereof. In some respects... I'm preaching the same message this week that I did last week from a different angle. Different text, different angle, different perspective, but same truths. Last week we spoke about gentleness or meekness as essential to Christ's kingdom culture. This week from James we're exploring the essential uh, starting places to begin developing such a culture. And it starts with what we say, how we use our tongues. This message carries the same awkwardness as last, last week's message. I am speaking about very real problems, not out there, but very real problems that are in here. So many of you might be thinking, well, is he talking about this situation or that situation or this other situation? And the answer is probably, even if I don't know about it, but I can tell you I know about a few that are just like it. I'm talking about situations you don't know about that I, I'm in and ones that you're in and so yeah, is for you to 
Hear me as your brother in Christ who knows that all of this applies to me as much as it applies to you. And I can only hope that you'll hear it as applying to you as much as it applies to me. And by the way, I'm keenly aware that we all need to grow in these areas that I'm speaking about and that I am most likely to be blind about the areas I need to grow in. And what goes along with that is you're most likely to be blind about the areas you need to grow in. It's just the way that works. To understand why it is essential that we are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, we're actually going to look at the third chapter of James where I think he's just expositing those verses we began with, where we get the why behind the proverb. And so we're going to explore the third chapter under three headings, slow to speak, slow to become angry, quick to listen. Um, And so if you would uh, look with me afresh under that heading, slow to speak, slow to speak. And uh, read with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read from James 3, beginning uh, in verse 1. I'll read the first 10 verses. And, and asking the question, why must we be slow to speak? I think James tells us. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. We'll pause there for the moment. I think we've just read a long list of why we should be slow to speak. We should be slow to speak because our tongue directs the course of our lives. You want to be careful where your life is going, so you need to be careful where your tongue is going. Amen? One might assume that the theme of wisdom only begins in verse 12 of this chapter where it's specifically mentioned, but... The reality is that from a biblical perspective, wisdom is that which guides one's life into paths of peace. For James, the tongue directs the life and is empowered from the heart, a heart whose wisdom is either set on fire by the fires of hell or tamed into peace by the mercies of heaven. If we were to diagram the chapter, it might look like this slide that I, I made. 
You've, you've got wisdom down here, and there's, you see the flames, kind of the, the lava down below, and it's working its way up. But it's down here in the unseen place. That's where the heat is generated. And the heart, it, it, whatever the source of wisdom, whether heaven or hell, then it goes to the heart, and the heart then controls the tongue, and the tr- tongue affects how we live, what our life, what our behavior is, what's going on in our lives, whether it be strife or peace. The wisdom at the bottom is either wisdom set on fire by the fires of hell, which is where James starts, but later in the chapter we'll see that there is an alternative, thanks be to God. You see, it can actually be wisdom fired by the mercies of heaven instead. Just as with faith, the way you know what kind of wisdom you're dealing with is by the deeds or by the life of the person speaking. So, that... that uh, just as with faith, so that wisdom, that so-called wisdom, that, that wisdom, we might put in air quotes, is either from heaven or hell. Now, if it's from hell, of course, we know it's not really wisdom, right? But it's to be made known by the life, the deeds of the person speaking. James makes the assumption that quick speech is nearly always wrong speech. Quick speech is nearly always wrong speech. Now, I, I can't speak about you, but I can confirm in my life that that holds true. Right, just saying. That just, it just holds true. Um, <clears throat> since wisdom guides a life, then the tongue is a kind of wisdom, so to speak, because it does guide our lives. Whether we control our tongues or not is guiding us in our life into uh, life and peace or death and strife. The tongue, to put it another way, is either a firearm that produces death wherever it is loosed, or a farm, it is never neutral. And this is the danger. Not firing off the firearm is a good step. But using our speech as a farm implement that nurtures life is hard work. It means doing the work of plowing and patiently waiting for a crop. It is, to borrow from that event, that, that event with Moses when he's told to strike the rock, it, or, or to speak to the rock, it, it is speaking to the rock rather than striking the rock to use wisdom in our tongue. But we much prefer, even verbally, to strike the rock. That's our nature. That's our instinct in the flesh. Our tongues must be, to borrow from Isaiah, must be turned from swords into plows and from spears into pruning hooks. From implements of death into implements of life and peace. The whole life of the church, not just your individual life. The whole life of the church, the body, is directed by the tongues of its members. Be slow to speak. Because we all deal with the consequences of that. Be slow to speak. Our tongues, collectively, are either set on fire by heaven or hell. As with fire, all the work of service that we do over a period of years can be destroyed with but a few words poorly spoken. I mean, you can build a house, you can furnish the house, you can decorate the house. Just one little fire can destroy all that. And that's what the tongue can do. While there is greater judgment for the one who teaches, 
when they speak wrongly. To be honest, fire is still fire. Destroyed is still destroyed. So we must all guard our tongues. We must be quick to listen and slow to speak. To be sure, we must speak at some point. <laughs> you can't just be slow to speak forever. And I'm not going to say anything because that's... No, you've got to speak sometime. And there's a time to address things. But we must be quick to listen and slow to speak. We must speak as those who are also sinners to those who are sinners. We must speak with the gentleness and meekness that we explored last week that should characterize our speech one to another. Poirier, whom I cited earlier as saying conflicts are about persons before they are about problems, goes on to say, there remains nonetheless problems to be solved. So we must Consider how to move from the reconciliation of persons to the resolution of the problems. So, yes, it starts with persons, but we got to get to the problems. But it's essential that we take some time and address the heart issues before we start looking at the surface issues. We must get there. We will get there. But this week we're still um, practicing what comes first, if you will, addressing the person. Lest all our conflicts have to be settled you know, like Solomon did. I'll just cut the baby in half. That'll settle everything. <laughs> that kind of worked in that situation, but it doesn't really work in church life too often, you know. You've got to find other ways to get to the heart of the matter. Don't let the seeming insignificance of the tongue, the, the size, in other words, it's just this little bitty thing. It's actually hidden. You don't really see it very often. Don't let that seeming insignificance fool you into neglecting it. Verses 5 and 6 explain this. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Great forest, small spark. And we, of course, you see that in the out west and the news this last, well, seems like almost every year, but certainly the last couple of years, the fires in California and Oregon and Washington, it's amazing how much forest can be destroyed. One of the biggest fires in one section of California, an area where we've not too long back been, a few years ago we were, somebody actually did something, I don't know if they were lighting a match and throwing it this way or leaving something going, but they started this thing by some seemingly you know, insignificant thing. Well, that's what happens with our tongue. We start great forests by fires, by insignificant words from our mouth, or so we think they are, but they are not insignificant. The tongue also, verse 6, is a fire, a world of evil, a cosmos of injustice. Might be a way to read that and render that. Among the parts of the body, it corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. One could not likely find metaphors that would put greater emphasis on the significance of the words that we speak than those that James has chosen. Metaphors that show whether they, that, that however you use them, they're catalysts of life or death. So be slow to speak. Slow to become angry. That's our second heading. Slow to become angry. The heart is a spring that flows from our mouths, we're going to see here in verses 11 and 12. 
Verse 11 assumes a metaphor of the heart as a spring which flows through the mouth. So you've got this spring inside that flows through the mouth. Jesus used the same idea on more than one occasion in the Gospels. But in verse 11 we read this, Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Now, James is just mixing metaphors ridiculously here between trees and springs, but he doesn't seem to be too worried about it. <laughs> you can figure it out, right? It's not that hard. You got the tree or the vine and its fruit. The, the vine or tree or the heart or the spring. In the other metaphor, they're the spring. And the fruit is the life or the deeds of one's life, which are directed by the words coming out of the mouth. To guard our mouths, we must guard our hearts. To be slow to speak, we must be slow to become angry. Tongue, which is what it, where it flows from, that comes to our uh, tongue. So that's why we must be slow to become angry. Since the tongue is fueled by the heart, either from, either from the uh, fires of hell or from heaven, James begins an examination of the qualities of the heart that stand behind our speech in verses 13 through 18. Let's read those verses. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. The, the characteristics of the fuel tell us where it is from. If I can, something's lit on fire by hell, I'm just using fuel as a part of that metaphor in our modern language, okay? The characteristics of the fuel tell us where it is from. These characteristics are revealed by one's life. In other words, the deeds of the one speaking the so-called wisdom. And often those deeds are revealed, when I look at these lists, in the very actions themselves. By good life, James means a morally beautiful way of life. Such a life consists of deeds done in the humility of wisdom. You see, gospel wisdom breeds humility, and that humility produces deeds toward others, affecting both how we speak and act toward each other. How we speak and act toward each other. The alternative is that we have deeds done from a pseudo-wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. We must remember that this so-called wisdom masquerades not as pseudo-wisdom, but it masquerades as wisdom. It doesn't masquerade as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It masquerades as, oh, this is God's wisdom. I mean, if it just wore a sign saying, hey, I'm earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, most Christians would say, I think I'll pass on that. But that's not how it presents itself. It's appealing to us. It's logical to us. It's reasonable to us. It's wrong. <laughs> but... 
We need to discern what makes it wrong versus right. James gives us a way. What are the characteristics of earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom? Well, first, bitter envy. Now, honestly, I think we all recognize if you step back and look at at least other people's envy, not your own, of course, it's much more reasonable, but other people's envy just seems silly sometimes, right? The things people get envious over, it's just like, this is absurd. But not when we're in the middle of it, it doesn't. And this motive of bitter envy, as silly as it may seem, it's highly destructive. Some examples, some big examples in Scripture that come to mind quite quickly, of course. Um, how about Cain, who is angry at God for choosing to accept Abel's offering and in a way that he did not choose Cain's offering? Cain's envy led to a bitter root growing up in him, according to the author of Hebrews. And, of course, we know it led to the murder of his brother Abel. We see it in Joseph's brothers, who envied Joseph because God had chosen uh, to make him ruler over his brothers in order to save them, mind you. Of course, they didn't know that, that at the moment. It certainly didn't seem to matter to them. They were envious of him and ended up selling him into slavery to some folks and ends up in Egypt. We see it in Korah's rebellion, which can be summed up in what makes you think you're so special kind of envy. And, of course, it was certainly a large contributing factor in what led to the leaders of the Jews condemning Jesus to crucifixion. So it, it's, it's a big theme throughout, <laughs> throughout Scripture. It's a big one. The second characteristic of this earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom that's listed is selfish ambition. Now, it, it, that's an interesting word that's translated selfish ambition because the root of the word is really about hostility. But, but it, the root is simply hostility, but the, this word itself, this form of that root, developed right around the same time as the New Testament is being written. So it's being used in, in, around, you know, in, in other parts of the culture. Um, but it seems as if it is trying to reuse that word in a way as to what defines the motivations for that hostility. What defines the motivations behind hostility? And, and, and in short, if I can simplify it, it's a desire to be, and you can fill in the blank, a desire to be, fill in the blank, with whatever you are striving for in the moment that you are striving. It's a desire, I need this position, a desire, I need this stuff. It's a desire, whatever it is that you are striving to get for yourself. That is what is driving the hostility with other people. You following that? So it is hostility. Some translations even go there, but it's this selfishness. Become angry, slow. Now, it doesn't take a degree in psychology to know that anger is frequently used to control others. The angry person can, tr can control the room even when there is no anger evident. When others fear setting off the manipulator's anger, so they modify their behavior to pacify said manipulator. They don't even have to be angry. If they've done it enough in the past, they don't even have to act angry in the moment. They can control the room. You've been there, right? You've seen that? Regardless, the, that kind of manipulation never leads to the righteous life that, to which we are called. Humility, mercy, being easily entreated, being gentle and forbearing do lead to the righteous life that God desires.
Wisdom from heaven is slow to anger. It's also quick to listen. Slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen. And that's our third heading. What are the characteristics of this wisdom from heaven? We looked at the characteristics of the wisdom which is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. But what are the characteristics of the wisdom from heaven? First off, it is pure. And that's speaking of moral purity. It's pure. It's morally pure. There's nothing immoral involved in it. The rest of the things in this list are actually relational, which I find interesting. Obviously, there's moral purity, which is, in effect, relational, but that's a bigger discussion. But the rest of them are clearly, easily connected to relational aspects of our lives. The second one, it's peace-loving. Or we might say peaceable, some translations use, or peaceful. In other words, it's not filled with friction. It earnestly seeks the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, to borrow from Paul in Romans 4. I'm sorry, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. It's peaceful. It's seeking the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How, how does that shape how our wisdom is? Well, it in order to seek to be peaceful, I have to first seek to understand. I have to first seek to listen, right? If I start with speaking before listening, that's never, my experience, never peaceful, right? Wouldn't it be great if in, in people's disputes in the church, they came together and they're like, you know, no, I'd really rather hear you first. No, no, I'd, I'd rather hear you. No, no, I, I need to hear you. No, let's really, I, please tell me more. I mean, well, that'd be a great way to have a dispute, wouldn't it? If we're seeking to understand the other. By the way, I haven't tried that yet, just to be honest. I <laughs> haven't had that experience, and I'm half the problem to that. At least, maybe, maybe all the problem at times. Considerate. What does it mean to be considerate? The word that's translated considerate means to be gentle and forbearing. It actually captures the essence of last week's message in a word. Considerate, gentle, forbearing, submissive. This has to do with being easily persuaded. Being easily persuaded. It's the essence of being quick to listen. I mean, this is at the very core. This is what it means to be quick to listen. You are easily persuaded. I'm willing to let you persuade me. Not only am I willing, but I'm going to make it easy for you to persuade me. I, I find this one hard. Let's, let's be honest. Easily persuaded? Really? I mean, can I make it just a little bit challenging? I mean, I want some good reasons if I'm going to change my mind. I know you're probably not this way, but I am. So I have to work all the harder to consider the opinion of another. Now, when I'm at my best, and I'm sad to say, yes, this is my best. It's about as good as it gets for me so far. When I'm listening to somebody who I just like, I'm like, I'm short-circuiting. I don't understand how you think that way. When I'm at my best, I just remain quiet. I don't say a lot. I might ask a few questions to understand what they're saying. But then later, I spend time exploring the other person's perspective in private and in prayer, trying to be persuaded when possible. 
I've done that a handful of times. It's not as if I'm just making that up. But I had to get there, and it took a lot of work because I recognized it was what I was not doing far more often than what, it was, what I was doing. How much effort do we require others to present and to come up with to persuade us of their position? That is not quick to listen. That is not being easily persuaded. We can't, as we talked about last week, we can't agree to agree without that. And remember, as Christians, from last week's message, we're not called to agree to disagree. Anyone can do that. That's worldliness. We're called to agree to agree, which is much harder, admittedly. But we have to be easily persuaded if we're going to get there. Amen? Full of mercy and good fruit. I don't think anyone's going to arrive at the judgment seat of Christ concerned that they were overly merciful or overly compassionate. It's like, oh, no, I'm waiting in line. I'm next. Man, I, I think I was too merciful. Uh, what's he going to say about that? No, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Now, I do think we might have the question of I'm next, and, you know, I don't think I was as merciful as I should have been. That, that, one, that one might come up. I was a little bit harsh, a little bit short. That one, that one is more likely to be the scenario. Without partiality. Do we value the input of the rich more than we do that of the poor? Do we champion ideas that will please the powerful over the weak? Right, this one, in our culture, we all wrestle with that one. We just do. Maybe unless we're super poor. Now, this is authenticity indeed, without pretense. But it's a call to authentically display all of the previously listed characteristics. Not just authentically display whatever's going on in your heart. That's called lack of self-control. So this is about authentically displaying the things above, which means you can't just put them on, but do them and work at them until they become your nature. Be slow to become angry. <laughs> Be quick to listen. In fact, all of these might be summed up as self-control, which isn't in the list, but self-control is that fruit of the Spirit that in some sense is required to have the others. You, you can't have these without that. Augustine, not too different from James, identified true wisdom as that which produces the fruit of love rather than that which ha merely has great exegesis. True wisdom is that which produces the fruit of love, not that which is always right doctrinally or exegetically. He says this, Whoever then thinks he understands the Holy Scriptures or any part of them, but puts such an interpretation upon them as does not tend to build up this twofold love of God and our neighbor, does not yet understand them as he ought. In other words, if our wisdom does not lead to love of God and neighbor, it's off. What we think we know, we do not know as we ought. 
This person may be right, for instance, about the highway number one must take if they're going to New Orleans. Well, you got to take 75 to I-10, head off to New Orleans. But they are wrong about which direction to take it. So they, they do take 75 to I-10, get on I-10 East and get in Jacksonville. The problem is it ain't New Orleans. So they, they, have, it, they have it right. Man, look at this exegesis. It's all right. The doctrine right. But they're going the wrong place because they're misdirected. That's much better if, to actually adapt an illustration from Augustine since they didn't have the same kinds of roads we have here. Um, to adapt his illustration, that's much better. It's much better to have a scenario where, okay, I know I need to go a little bit north and then west as soon as I can until I get to New Orleans. Now, I may not know which highway numbers. I may not know anything else. But if I go north and west on whatever roads, even if I have to cut through a few fields without roads, I can eventually stay close to the coast. I will eventually get to New Orleans. It may be the slow way. It may be the hard way. It may be a difficult way. But I will get there because my direction is right. Even if my highway numbers are just, who knows, crazy. All sorts of roads that I shouldn't be on. And that's how we need to be in our discussions. We need to get the direction right first. Got to get the direction right. Now, yes, it would be very helpful if we could get the highways numbers right and what those are, and make life much more smooth. But we need to get the direction right. And that's why we're spending time last week in this really focused on the direction and less on the highway numbers, the processes, if you will, that help us get there. Augustine. Continues, he says, if on the other hand a man draws a meaning from the Scriptures, them, that may be used for the building up of love, even though he does not happen upon the precise meaning which the author whom he reads intended to express in that place, his error is not pernicious, and he is wholly clear from the charge of deception. Finally, let me, let me approach it from this angle, and we'll just we'll close. What is truth? Remember that scene with Jesus before Pilate when Jesus tells him the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth? Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate's retort, what is truth? But James, like his earthly brother Jesus, seems to think that some things are more true than others. There are truths and then there is the truth. Pilate was a king. It's true. Governor, I guess we could say. Herod was a king, but they were rulers, to put it more simply. That's the truth. That Jesus is king is the truth. Pilate's not a king anymore. Jesus still is. All your sins and trespasses are a truth. They're, they are truths, you could say. But God's forgiveness of your sins in Christ Jesus on the cross is the truth. Someone else's offenses against you are truths. But forgiveness is the truth because it is the way of Christ Jesus. Forgive one another. That's the truth. 
Someone's doctrinal error might, in truth, be an error, but not loving them violates the truth and therefore is the greater error. Now, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead, we will explore processes for how to engage one another, but those are, again, more like the right highway numbers, not the right direction. We, we must always keep the right direction in mind as we explore the highway numbers. If we follow these, this direction, we'll eventually get to the right destination, even if we take the hard path. Let's ask ourselves some questions as we close today. In what ways have you been slow to listen? In what ways have you been quick to speak? Are there times that you have been quick to anger? And how might the Lord call you to address any and all of the above? These are important questions as we approach the communion table this morning. Important questions because this table reminds us that we are one body that eats at one table. We're a family, we just talked about earlier. We're a family. We eat at the same dinner table. This is our dinner table. We eat from one loaf, which means we're joined. And that means that our unity, we, that we must earnestly seek, I mean, with all our energy seek, the unity of the Spirit within the bond of peace. That's what this table reminds us of because we, there is one God, one Lord, one Spirit. Amen?